So we are learning about God, and the way you do that is through learning about His attributes. God has a lot to tell us about Himself in Scripture, and if you want to know who God is, you study His attributes, because that is who God is. God is in his nature these things that we are learning. And sometimes people think this is very dry. I I had a quote last week. I think this is not dry as dust theology. This is theology that shapes our view rightly of who God is. The most common mistake I think that modern Americans make is they create a God in their own image. Or they take a God described in the Bible and then they kind of shave off some things they don't like. As if, as if you could kind of get rid of some of the attributes of God. And that leaves them with a different God by the time they're done creating and shaving off the parts of God they don't like, as if there are parts at all. There's not, of course. We'll get to that. But we need to learn about the one true God, the triune God of Scripture. So we'll cover the Trinity and we'll cover the decree of God and creation a little further along in this class. But right now we're just looking at the different attributes. I told you there's quite a few. We, we did... Two groupings, I think that's the best way to do it. The incommunicable, these are ones that are not transferred to us, not shared with us. So we're starting with the first three today. Hopefully we'll cover the rest of the incommunicable next week. And then we'll get into the communicable. These are ones that are communicated to us. They are shared in a sense with us. Not that God shares himself, that's not what we mean by shared. It means that we have an attribute that is similar, but of course not in the same magnitude and not, not even truly the same exactness of these attributes. When, when we say God is love, He's divine love. He's pure love. When we say we love, it doesn't mean that we have divine love. We, we have a sense of love. We, we have an, an analogous love is what it's called. By analogy, we can use that word, but it's not anywhere close to God's divine love, which is infinite, of course. So these are the attributes. There's different listings if you open Wayne Grudem's book. I don't remember how many he has. He might have 12 or 14 or 16. Some people go up to 20. You can see even today, infinity, we're going to stop right in the middle of infinity, which can be subdivided into the infinity of of time and the infinity of space. So there's different ways of categorizing this. But what matters is we search out the scriptures. We find these things, like the good Bereans, we find these things in scripture. And whether we want to separate truth and faithfulness, you know, we'll leave that to the people who write the textbooks. But we're going in the order that they have them right here. And that's what we'll be going through. So hopefully you're keeping up with the reading. If you have the textbook, if you don't, what are you waiting on? The thing's only doubled in price since it came out. We used to get these and sell them for like $36. And now I looked on Amazon, it's $70 for this thing. Now we still have, I think, a good price in the bookstore, but $70. I mean, it's valuable, but it's almost doubled in price since it came out. It's a good textbook, though. It really is. They use it at Master Seminary and many seminaries around the world now. All right, we went quickly at the end last week, and we said, you know, these are not parts of God. Don't think of the attributes as parts of God. We didn't put in some ingredients here and then come up with God. That's not how it works. We'll come back to that when we talk about simplicity. I want to finish, though, with these two. That's where we stopped last week. Before we move on, I want to go back to these. These are two wrong views of God's attributes. So the one on the left is the ingredients view, right? You just mix these things together. And and as you add them up, finally you get to this place. Oh, that's God. No, God is not parts. He cannot be divided. He's not ingredients, attributes added together. He's also not God with these things on the outside. Like he doesn't put on love. The Bible says God is love. 
That's speaking of his nature. The, the verb is speaks of God's nature, who he is, and how he exists, and who he is that exists. So these are not something that God just puts on and takes off, or occasionally has and occasionally doesn't. These are always present in God. So you'll find a, a book in the bookstore, All That Is In God. These things, take the circles off of the little ones, and all of those go in the big circle. That is who God is. Now that's hard for us to understand, but that is how God reveals himself in Scripture. So let's talk about the first one this morning. We're covering three incommunicable attributes. Aseity. That's a Latin word. Aseity. And that comes from a, which means from. It's a preposition in Latin or abbreviation for a preposition. And se, which is where we get our English word self. So from himself. This is the attribute of God that means he's independent of all things. God exists independent of all things. He's self-existent. He's self-sufficient. If you're self-existent, you don't need anything else. You don't need anyone else. You are self-sufficient. He has no need of human beings or the rest of creation. So we've already kind of gone against the modern idea of God right here with the first attribute. We haven't even gotten into one yet, and we've already messed up a lot of people's theology out there in the world today. They believe that God needs us, that God needs the world. Some views, like pantheism or panentheism, believes that God is the world, or God needs the world as kind of his body. But aseity, or you could just say independence, it's the same thing, but I like aseity. R.C. Sproul, I first heard it from him, and you got to say it like R.C. Sproul to be a good theologian. Aseity is that God needs nothing, and nothing brought him into existence, and God is fully independent of all things. This is awesome, I think. When we think about God, he doesn't need us, which means all things that we have come from where? God. Everything comes from God. Everything we need comes from him. And we can't think we have to sit around and somehow, you know, is God asleep? We'll look at a verse in a minute that speaks of God not growing weary. Some people struggle to think, can God hear me? Does he hear my prayers as a true believer? Does God even hear me? God is always existing and he's self-existent. And he needs nothing from us to be God. He is always God. Here's how biblical doctrine said he's the eternal foundational being, the source of life and sustenance for all other beings. So the fact that God is self-existent, everything that comes into existence comes from him. So he's the source of all life and he sustains all life. Now this will be more clear when we study God's providence. That's the sustaining of all things. But God is the foundational being. Aseity is God's perfect self-sufficiency as the eternal foundational being. You know, the ancient philosophers would sit around, not stare at their navel, but sometimes they would just sit around and think about the concept of God. Now, they didn't get God exactly right according to Scripture. They didn't have the revealed Word of God. But they realized, like some atheists can't seem to fathom today, that there must be someone or something that created all of this. There must have been the first being who brought all other beings into existence. And even the pagan philosophers could at least get that small thing right. Didn't save them, of course, but 
that we're starting to think of God in the right sense. Today, man just throws all this out and says, uh, God doesn't exist or that God needs us, that God relies on us, that my God, you'll hear this phrase, my God wouldn't do such a thing. My God is a compassionate God and he needs me to love him, to worship him, as if God grows as we worship him. So that's really just mixing a lot of good and bad theology. God is compassionate, but he doesn't need us to be compassionate too. God is already compassionate before we ever came into existence. So the foundational verse here is Exodus 3.14. Just get this one memorized, you know, because it's come up in sermons a lot lately in Romans. And it also is where we see the name of God coming from I am. But that same verb there, that's related to his name, Yahweh, also tells us of his self-existence. Let's go to Exodus 3.14. We'll be all over our Bibles this morning as we look at these attributes. So Exodus 3.14, And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Moses says, Who are you? Who, who should I tell them that has sent me to Pharaoh, to send me to the Hebrew people to rescue them? You tell them, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent you. I am is a verb. Now later, we, we quickly learn that it's Yahweh. Yahweh is tied back to this verb, Hayah. And Hayah in Hebrew is I am or I exist. God is the I am. He's the existing one. He is the self-existent God. There, there is no other God. There is no other being that is self-existent. God is the I am. This is a, a very clear statement, a definitive statement about who God is. This is the defining statement. This is why we cover it often as the first attribute. He's independent. He is the I am. He exists. He exists in eternity past, which is not really a, a good term to use for God, but we'll come to that in a minute when we speak of eternity. He exists eternally, and he is the foundational being the self-existent being. Here's Stephen Sharnock. I am, talking about this verse, that is, I receive from no other what I am in myself. He, God, depends upon no other in his essence, knowledge, or purposes, and therefore hath no changing power over him. So key. If we don't get this one right, we'll mess up the other attributes. If we think God is dependent on us, or he has to learn something, or God changes because of what we do, then will mess up a lot of the attributes and will misunderstand who God is. And some people, this will go all the way to heresy. Not only will they misunderstand or not know who God is here in Scripture, but they will go on into heresy and believe God becomes whoever they want Him to be. So Stephen Charnock, if you haven't read his two volumes, Puritan, what are you guys waiting on? I mean, it's, it's two thick volumes on Charnock's The Attributes of God. He says a lot more than I can fit into this whole semester of classes. Challenging though, but he wasn't, he wasn't really, he preached, but he was a, a medical doctor. He was a physician in Puritan times, and he thought he would study the doctrine of God and write it out. And he did teach and preach occasionally, but he was not first and foremost a preacher. He, he started out as a medical doctor who wanted to examine closely the attributes of God according to scripture. Here's a book we have in the bookstore by Matthew Barrett called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. And speaking on this verse, he says, To affirm God's aseity is to say first and foremost that he is life in and of himself. 
These things are going to be hard for us to comprehend at times. What does it mean to be life in and of himself? I mean, we have a hard enough time contemplating what our own life is, right? Uh, Our society can't even figure that out. They don't know what a man is, what a woman is. They don't know what life means. They think life begins sometime after you come out of the womb. They don't understand life. But even Christians have a hard time, I think, understanding what does it mean to be life in and of himself? This is why a lot of the attributes, the incommunicable ones, are by way of negation. Ah, saity or independence. He's not dependent. All we can say is he's not dependent. But what kind of existence is that? We, we don't, only God knows, I think. Uh, we just know that he is self-existent. We have no experience as to what it means to be fully independent. And we never will. We'll always be dependent on God, even into eternity. Here's Augustine on the Trinity. He says, who is there that is? More than he who said to his servant Moses, I am that I am. So who is there that is? Who who else is there is what Augustine is saying here about God. Who else is there? There's only God. When you get right down to it, all things come from God. He is the one who needs no one else, nothing else. So let's look at a couple more verses now that speak of this. Isaiah 43.10. Isaiah has so much about the attributes of God. If you want to learn about who God is. Read Exodus, the Psalms, Isaiah, and Job. And you'll get just almost every attribute right there. There's probably a few that need some other books of the Bible, but those hit almost all the attributes we're going to study. So we're going to Isaiah here, 43.10. So there he is again. I am he. I am Yahweh. I am the one true God. There are no other God. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Which, there's not really a before God, and there's not really an after God. So what he's saying here is, there are no other gods. There are no, and he's talking to Israel, saying, why do you even worry about those things? Why do you worship those other gods? There is no other God. And this is God speaking of himself. Acts 17, Paul is speaking to the unbelieving Greeks, those in Athens who think they're philosophers, they think they understand who this creator God is, but they don't really. And Paul uses a bit here of what's called just the common knowledge of God, the natural knowledge of God that Romans 1 speaks of, that God makes sure all people know something about him, that he exists, of course, that he's holy, that we should glorify him. So go to Acts 17, 24, and 25. As if God needed anything. Paul's saying, look, you know these things. I mean, you know that there's a God out there who needs nothing. He's not like these gods that you built temples to. They, they need the temple. They need the priest. They need the sacrifices. They need the food. But not the one true God. Yes, he did tell his people to sacrifice. But it was for their benefit, not his. It makes a big case later in the prophets that he doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires obedience. He desires obedience. To do sacrifice is not something that God needs. He doesn't really need our obedience either, but that's the first and foremost thing he wants his people to do is to obey. So as if he needed anything, he doesn't. How do we know that? How does, how does Paul argue with the Athenians that they know that, these, these philosophers? Because he says God gives everything. God gives people everything they need. So therefore, by logical reasoning, we know that he doesn't need anything himself. 
He's the giver of all things. Have you ever heard this? God created man because he was lonely. I mean, that just completely rejects God's aseity, doesn't it? God created man because he was lonely. Now, whether the person realizes it or not, they're saying that God needed something, that he wasn't complete in himself, that he wasn't independent. John writes of of Christ's words here in John 17. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer. So here's the son praying to the father. Let's find out what he says about this. John 17, 5. Maybe you should have these verses, you know, written in your Bible. So when somebody says, God created us. Sometimes they start the gospel presentation like this. Right? God was sort of sitting there saying, I'm lonely. And he created you for a relationship. John 17, 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. God has always existed. God is triune. He is trinity. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed, which means three persons, one God, has always existed, which means there was an intertrinitarian relationship before the world began. And Jesus is acknowledging that here in his prayer. If you go to verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, this is his disciples, be with me where I am, so that they may see my uh, glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. So sometimes this will be stated a little different. People won't say lonely, but they'll say God wanted somebody to love because he had nobody to love. So he created humanity. Well, Jesus says here that you loved me, Father, before the world began, before all things were created, before the foundation of the world. So God doesn't need us. God doesn't need us. Now, to some, that sounds harsh, right? That sounds like, well, why, are we, why do we exist? You know, did he just create us to, to be a plaything? No, there's still a purpose for our creation. God doesn't have to need us to, for us to feel important. That's often how people think about it. It makes me feel important that God would need me. Well, if God did not need us, then why did he create us? Well, God doesn't need anything or anyone, but he did create. That's a fact. So he created us for his glory. Let's go back to Isaiah again. There's a lot, especially in that second part of Isaiah, but all of Isaiah, a lot is said about God and his purposes and his attributes. Isaiah 43, 7. Speaking of Israel here, but this can be applied to generally to all mankind, but especially to those who follow God, believers in him. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory. Why did God create? Ultimately, why does God do anything? For his glory. Not because he needs to. He's independent. He doesn't need anything. He's self-sufficient, self-existing. He did it for his glory. And he made them, he says, for his glory. Israel is for his glory. New covenant believers, Gentiles and Jews, are for his glory. All people are ultimately for his glory. Even the unbeliever will serve to glorify him in a sense. We saw this in Romans 9.22. Why did God create us? Believers are supposed to glorify him through their testimony, through proclaiming his great name to the world, through their life because they've been redeemed. But even unbelievers comes up in, recently we looked at this in Romans 9. And what if God wanting to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much 
patience, vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction. So even those who will never believe, those who reject God, those who are on their path to eternal punishment, God says he was patient with them. Paul is saying here that God was patient with them so that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. So even the unbeliever glorifies God and contrasting what God does for the believer. The eternal punishment of the unbeliever ends up glorifying God because it proves and shows that he's just, of course, but it also shows the difference between the person who receives punishment and the person who received his grace for eternal glory. And through that, through glorifying him, we, we bring God joy. He doesn't need us to give him joy. He's joy in himself. But I think this is an interesting verse that often gets overlooked. Zephaniah 3.17. He'll be joyful in his gladness. And even the idea of God singing. I mean, that's, that's, that's expressing joy that God has for his people. He didn't need us, but in his eternal decree to create and the purpose behind that is to glorify him. And then he shows his love to us. He shows his joy to us. We are recipients of that. that that's amazing. That, that should bring us to a point of giving God even more thanks than we do. Not just thank you, God, for saving me, but you didn't need to save me, number one. Number two, you didn't even need to create anything, and yet you did. That's pure grace. When somebody doesn't have to do something and then they do it, isn't that the greatest kindness? That he does a nice, graceful thing for us, and he did not have to. What an amazing God. All right, let's look at immutability. Immutability, this is the second incommunicable attribute. Immutability means not mutable, not changeable. God cannot change. And when we say that, we're talking about four different areas here. He cannot change in his being. He cannot change in his perfections. That's his attributes. He cannot change in his purposes and in his promises. So his being, that's his nature. God's nature does not change. That's usually what people think about when they think about immutability. A lot of times people think of, of God's being or his perfections uh, needing to change for us. He needs to respond to us or he's not a real person or God or, or so on. He doesn't have personality, theologians will say, if he doesn't change. But also, before we get into that, let's look at purposes and promises. If God said something will happen, he, he's not going to change. God's purposes have been set. We know his revealed decree in the Bible we don't know everything that occurs outside of what he's told us in Scripture. We don't know his secret will, his secret decree. Those are the secret things that belong to God, as Moses said. We do know the revealed things that belong to his people. Those are his purposes. And we see some glimpses of that when we're looking at election and predestination. Promises. When God makes a promise, he will keep the promise. That's Romans 8 right there. That's, that's Romans 9, 10, 11. Paul's sort of defending what's going on with the Jews and God's keeping his promises ultimately to them. It may not seem like it to us in our short little span of time, but Paul says in the end, God keeps all of his promises. And he is doing it right now. It just doesn't happen the way we think it should sometimes. So God is eternally the same. I think when I first started studying the attributes of God, this, this was my favorite. Because what would happen if God was changing? Today he's happy with you. Tomorrow he's upset with you. Today he accepts Christ's sacrifice for you. But tomorrow, well, he's changed his mind. 
You're no longer his. There's a lot of Christians who kind of believe that, right? Today you got your salvation, even though the Bible says you can't lose it. Hey, you lost it tomorrow. God changes his mind tomorrow. The next day it's up and down. It's all dependent on you or the mood that God is in. No, he's eternally the same. So when I first learned about God's attributes, I think this one was very comforting. God is not going to change his mind. He's, he's accepted Christ's sacrifice for me. He's removed my sins. He's given me the righteousness of Christ. That's not changing. God is immutable in his passions as well. This gets very debatable with modern theologians want to, wanting to believe that God is changing and responding to us and has emotions that, that sort of rise up, passions. Not, not the way we think of passions today, really passionate about something, but in the older Puritan especially way of thinking. Passions were, were emotions that, that arose due to the situation. So we think of anger. You don't go around hopefully all your days being angry. But there are times when people do things to you and the anger rises up. Right? There's a change. One day you're calm and then suddenly somebody you know, whacks you upside the head and you get upset. You're very angry. That's a passion that rose up. The same thing with love or, or in many cases lust and so on. Hunger in a sense, is, is a passion. You, you must eat. You're going to get very hungry and you'll start to get upset. And that wasn't the way it was after Thanksgiving, right? You were full. But then next day you were probably hungry again. Maybe that night. So we're talking about God not changing. Let's look at some verses here. Job 41.11. Let's do the, the Psalm 102. A few verses there on the screen. I'll do Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, 6, James 1, 17. Yeah, everything is God's. Everything is God's. It's all His. And He doesn't owe man anything. And He doesn't have to adapt to what happens. So not only in time, not only in time is, is God eternal, but this also speaks to the fact that everything else changes. God doesn't change. Everything changes. We change. The world changes. The universe changes. Molecules change. And, and chaos, you know, the, the whole idea of things breaking down is always happening. But God doesn't change. Isaiah 40, verse 13. Who has encompassed the spirit of Yahweh, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he take counsel, and whom gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and made him know the way of understanding? Which means no one teaches God. He knows all things. He, he doesn't change even in his thinking. He doesn't learn things in that sense. He doesn't grow. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the coastlines like fine dust. So he's saying the world thinks they're, they're so powerful. Mankind thinks he's so great. But mankind grows old. Mankind's body breaks down. The world goes into you know, disintegration. Molecules fall apart. Dust comes to man. Rust comes to metal. Buildings crumble without upkeep, but not God. No one teaches him anything new, and he is forever the same. Now look at verse 28 of Isaiah 40. Do you not know? So this is an encouragement to Israel because they think they've been abandoned in the exile. Do you not know? Have you not heard? God is exhorting them here. He's very strong. He's admonishing them. 
the everlasting God. That's an attribute of eternity. Yahweh, so now the covenant name, the creator of the ends of the earth. So all the titles and names that can fit here, our God is doing this, but Isaiah's writing it down here, does not become weary or tired. God doesn't grow tired like us. They're complaining to God that he's forgotten them in the exile. And God says, it's not as if I've gotten tired. I haven't fallen asleep over here. His understanding is unsearchable. God does not grow weary or tired. God does not change. God is not asleep. He doesn't sleep. God is always existing, always existing, and always the same. Malachi 3.6. How close, I mean, how, how close do we need to get to a clear statement on God's unchangeability? And yet theologians are debating this, putting out books like crazy today. So God doesn't change. Last one, James 1.17. There's a lot more than this. In your book, you'll find many, many more references. I'm just picking out some that I want to go through. No variation. He's the father of lights. He's pure light. He's always pure light. There's, there's no shadow. There's no change in him. He's not going to promise you something today, and then tomorrow changes mine. All right. So as Josie just mentioned, there's a lot of scriptures that seem to talk about God acting in time, changes his actions, he changes his attitudes. What are we to make of those verses? Because we have the verses that say God does not change, and then we have other verses that seems like God is changing, and the Bible doesn't contradict itself. As a good theologian, we have to work on this and say, okay, how do we make sense of this? We can't be schizophrenic in our theology and say, God doesn't change, but God changes. That's, that's contradictory. And this is the kind of stuff that believers love to go after. These kinds of supposed contradictions. Here are some of the phrases. I didn't put all the references, but you can find them in the book there. God repents. First of all, the word repent just means to turn. So if we think of it like that, and, and some of the Better translations today are, are helping us with that. God turned from the wrath that he was about to put on Nineveh is the idea. He doesn't repent as in repent of sin. That would really mess up our theology of God if we go that far. He's not repenting in that sense. But the term repent just means to turn from one thing to another. It seems like he changes his purpose. He gets angry or wrathful. He turns from his anger. He relates differently to the unbeliever. The unbeliever is an abomination. The unbeliever is going to be eternally punished. But then at the same time, he's delighting in the believer. He's pure to the pure. He opposes the wicked, though. He's incarnated in time and dwells the church, rejects Israel, people say. He, well, he does for right now anyway. And in Romans 10, we're going to see that today. He will eventually, though, not reject Israel. He receives the Gentiles. That should be one sentence. Receives the Gentiles after having rejected them for years. Then he saves Israel in the end. What's going on there? Is God changing his mind? You know, he's happy with Israel. He's not happy. He's happy with the Gentiles. Then he saves Israel in the end. What's going on? At one time he's wrathful. At another time he's forgiving. At one time he is close. At another he's removed. How do we make sense of that? We've talked about this some in, in men's leadership. And it keeps coming up as we're studying the attributes there as well. Well, here's one solution. It's not right. It's heretical. But open theism has a thought on this. Open theism is a, a view held by some theologians it developed in the 1900s to answer this question. Really, it developed on the issue of God's sovereignty and salvation, but it expands to answer this question as well. Uh, what open theists decided is that God can't know the future, because if God knew the future, then the future would have to happen. 
And if God knew you were going to be saved, then that would have to happen, which would then wipe out your free will. Therefore, working backwards, God doesn't know the future, and he's waiting to learn what we're going to do. So they believe God's not immutable. In other words, they believe he is mutable. He can change. And they also say, therefore, he's not omniscient. Because if God can change, he can learn. He can discover something he did not know before. Especially the fact that you're going to decide to become a Christian and believe. So God does not know the future, they say. This includes how people will respond to him. So he waits to learn what they will do before he responds to them. So in their mind, hey, these verses make complete sense. They don't address the issues that say God doesn't change. They say these verses are the standard. This is what we're going to talk about. God is growing and changing and responding to what humans do. In other words, human free will, they would say, is the standard that God has to adjust to. That's a problem with the rest of Scripture, of course. All of Scripture says that God is all-knowing, all-wise. So reject open theism. There's a lot of good books that were written. It's kind of died down now. There's still some prominent theologians out there who believe that. It's really Arminianism to the extreme. Arminianism on steroids. It takes ultimate free will and just runs with it all the way to the end, which is to reject God's sovereignty and knowledge. What's the biblical solution? Well, it depends on the passage that we're looking at. We have to interpret it in context. Here's some good solutions that were given to us in our seminary class on this. So instead of trying to add to that, I think they're all-encompassing here. First of all, immutability does not mean inactivity or immobility. It doesn't mean that God is, is passive, that he's sort of just sitting there waiting on us and then responding. God is eternally active. The, the old medieval term is actus purus. He's pure act. He is always acting. There is not a time when God is waiting to learn something, to respond to something. So in every way proper to his essence, he's always acting. The doctrine of immutability does not keep God from or exclude him from activities or emotions within time. We're going to talk in a minute about time. God is not bound within time, but he acts in time. So just to say that God in his essence doesn't change doesn't mean he doesn't act or do certain things. We know he does. Immutability also does not mean a lack of feeling. God is not impassable in the sense of not being able to experience emotion, but rather is impassable and being unchanged by his emotions. In other words, if the Bible describes God as having an emotion, that is who he is. He's always love. He's always righteousness. So when he shows and displays his wrath, it's not like that suddenly arose in God. God is always righteous. But he can choose to display that righteousness on certain people and not others. He can choose to display his, his righteousness on a certain time and more people in that time versus a different time, parts of the world, and so on. The same with wrath and holiness, salvation. So immutability does not mean that somehow God is coming up with these at the last minute. I like to think of it, and all analogies break down, but I like to think of it as light. If you, if you have pure light, a, a strong light source shining on you, and then you suddenly you know, put a book up in front of the light, did something happen to the light? Well, it's not shining on you anymore, but it's still there, isn't it? It's just not displaying on you. God's attributes are always there. But he may choose not to reveal them. Christ in his earthly ministry did not reveal his glory to everyone. 
Only a few people saw his glory during the time he walked the earth. So that's one way we can think about it. There's some illustrations the professor gives here in a little bit. Here's Robert Raymond in his new systematic theology of the Christian faith. Thus, whenever divine impassibility is interpreted to mean that God is impervious to human pain or incapable of empathizing with human grief, it must be roundly denounced and rejected. When the Confession of Faith, talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith, declares that God is without passions, it should be understood to mean that God has no bodily passions, such as hunger or the human drive for sexual fulfillment. So he's not human. He's not like us. He doesn't suddenly have these desires and urges. He's not just sitting around and then saying, oh, you upset me, now I'm going to do something. That's not the way to think about God. So here's a couple of illustrations uh, the professor gives here. The sun can nurture or burn and scorch, but it's still the sun, right? The sun can be good for you or the sun can be too much for you. But does the sun change? If you get sunburned or some of us who have darker skin don't get sunburned, did the sun change? No. A coin is still a coin, whether you're using it to, to pay something in full or just to put down a down payment. It doesn't change the coin the way it's then used. Now, these are limited illustrations, but it shows us that the thing doesn't change. The way it comes about or the way it's perceived by others will change. Here's a quote. I think this is from your textbook here. His emotions are active and deliberate expressions of his holy dispositions. Not, as is often the case with human emotions, involuntary passions by which he is driven. The passions in the ancient context, up until modern times, passion was not a good thing. You would not want passionate preaching. Now you do want passionate preaching because the, the meaning of the word has changed. But in the ancient times, in the Middle Ages, and even in the Puritan times, passions were bad. Passions are what drove you. They, they're what that led you in the wrong direction. And nowadays, like I said, the meaning has changed, so we can use that. It means more zealous, energetic, enthusiastic but we'll talk about that in the sermon today as well. Hopefully a passionate sermon. God has emotions, but they're not like our emotions. They're not in the sense of involuntary. They suddenly arise. Or we have this internal desire for something that we don't have. Here's A.W. Pink. God cannot change for the better, for he is already perfect. And being perfect, he cannot change for the worse. I think I left out a few points there. Let's go back. One more that I'll give you on the, I didn't put all Dr. Mook's points up. One more that I'll give you here is anthropomorphic language. Anthropomorphic means that God is using a language that sounds like something that we would experience. Anthro meaning man, pomorphic. The idea is that it's like it's in the form of us. It's in the form of something we would understand. It's language. It's baby talk that we understand. Because how do you understand perfect love? He has to give an analogy. He talks about a father loving his son. Jesus gives all these parables, right? The prodigal son and the elder brother. That's describing it in a language we can understand. Or theologians will use the term anthropopathic. Pathic meaning suffer or, or having passions, but usually the word is suffer. God doesn't suffer with us when we suffer. God doesn't change like that. God has compassion though. But sometimes language is used, especially in the Old Testament, to Israel to show them that God is with them. That God is there. He hasn't disappeared when they are suffering. And so he uses language that is similar to what we would use when we describe ourselves 
anthropos, man, pathic, suffering. So anthropomorphic language is God has hands that take care of us. But God doesn't have hands, right? Why does the Bible say that? Because he's using language so we can understand. He doesn't use philosophical language that we'll never grasp. He uses concrete language to describe something that we are familiar with. That God has feet. No, he doesn't have feet, but he walks among his people. He walks with Adam and Eve in the garden. How does he walk? He doesn't have legs. Well, you can say that's the pre-incarnate Christ. Still, though, Christ doesn't have a body yet as a pre-incarnate Christ. So it doesn't get us any closer. He's using language. He, he lisps as, I think it was Calvin who said, he lisps when he talks to us. He, he does baby talk. You don't take your two-year-old and try to explain calculus, right? You just say, here's one apple, here's two apples. You use apples so they can understand. Later, you know, you'll try to draw it out on paper. So that's the best we can do with those. I do think those are all good reasons. There's more in your book if you want to read on that. Okay, last one. Infinity. Infinity. What is infinity? God's nature transcends. It's transcending or transcends or is transcendent, however you want to say it. Meaning existing and acting beyond all limitations of time and space. So we talk about time, that's God's eternity. When we talk about space, that's God's omnipresence. Infinity. Not, not as if too much to count. When Frank did his Attributes of God class a few years ago, he talks about was it magnitude, infinity of magnitude, infinity of number. Not, this is not a mathematical infinity. This is that there are no boundaries on God in any sense of the term. There are no limitations on God as far as time and space. God has always existed. We already know that from Exodus 3.14 and other passages. That means, though, he has no beginning, no end, and he experiences no succession of moments. That's what time is, a succession of moments. One second after another, after another, after another. One year after another, after another. That's time. God does not experience time. He acts in time. He's not experienced time. Because if he did, what? What would happen? He would change. We experience time. What happens to us? We grow older, right? We change. Hopefully you've changed. You're supposed to change as a Christian as time goes on and grow in godliness. God doesn't need to grow. Not physically, not spiritually, not emotionally, not in any sense. Here's Louis Burkhoff, your old friend Louis. He says that perfection of God whereby he is elevated above all temporal limits and all succession of moments and possesses the whole of his existence in one indivisible present. Just take that quote and think about it for the next hundred years. This is why it's hard for us to, to get our minds around God. Of course, he's God. All we can say is he's not bound by any time or space. What does that mean? That he is having his whole existence in one indivisible present? indivisible present at all times in space. It's a little bit harder for us to really, we, we can know it through the words here, but to have any experiential knowledge is impossible for us. Wayne Grudem says God's eternity may be defined as follows. God has no beginning, no end, no succession of moments in his own being, and he sees all time equally, vividly, yet God sees events in time and acts in time. So when we talk about God's eternity, we're not saying he never acts in time. We're certainly not saying he's bound in time either. Time is something 
that goes along with space. It's part of God's creation. That's Wayne Grudem. He, he has the best little, a lot of people are scared to make drawings. I mean, come on, you're drawing God, right? But, but this is helpful. I mean, we understand the circles is not actually God, but uh, this helps us get a visual picture of it. God is outside of time, but that's his relationship to time. The eternal now, everything is present to God. Our past is present to God. Our present is present to God. Our future is present to God. Everything is present to God at the same time, which that's not even the right way to say it when speaking of God, right? So let's go back. Job 36, 26. Let's look at these really quick here. Number of his years is unsearchable because there is no number of his years. That's what it means to be unsearchable. You can't, you can't find it out, not because it's too hard of an equation to solve, but there is no answer to that. Psalm 91 to 6, Ernest. So that is a great psalm to teach us about God's eternity. Everlasting. You know what that means? Eternal. Two everlasting. So his beginning is eternity and his ending is eternity, which means he has no beginning and end because it's eternity any way we look at it. Psalm 92.2. Is that the right one? I don't know if that's the right citation. Look in the book, okay? We don't have time to look up the right one. It probably was somewhere in Psalm 92, but immortal. Immortal means eternal. He doesn't die. Second Peter 3.8. This cites Psalm 90. So the, the old earth people, they say, one day is like a thousand years. There you go. There's, that proves an old earth, right? One day in Genesis is like a thousand million billion years. That's not, first of all, what Peter's even talking about. He's talking about who God is. And he says what? One day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. Not talking about the creation of the earth even. It works both ways, which means that's just a way of saying God is eternal. He's outside of time. Time does not affect him. God sees all time at once. There is nothing outside of his sight. So God's nature is not bound by time. He's not limited by time in any way. We are, of course, all creation is limited by time and space. God is present. Here's, here's how the book says it. God is present, imminent. That means close, imminent. He's present in every moment, controlling every moment for his purposes and glory. If, if God is bound by time and in time and changes with time, he can't be God. He's in what's called the eternal present or the eternal now. And to even say he's in it doesn't work. He's not in a place. He is seeing all things in the present. There is no time with God. There is the creation of space and time. He acts in space and time. He's present in all space and time. But he's not bound by space and time. So that's as good as we can draw it out there. Time did start at some point. When did time start? In the beginning. There was a beginning, but not with God, right? Eternity has three characteristics, without beginning, without ending, and without succession of moments. So there's no beginning with God, there's no ending with God, and there's no succession of moments. Sometimes we just think eternity is going back, infinitely backwards, right? Or sometimes forwards when we think of ourselves. And we even say things like eternity past, an eternity future. It doesn't really work logically to say it like that, but that's the best we can do, right? Here's Dr. Mook. There's no time in God. Talking about God's nature. Although he is with time and knows its passage. So it's not like when we say God's outside of time, we don't mean by that that he doesn't understand or know what's happening or he's not acting in time or he's not present in time and space. He is Eternal essence, without beginning, without ending, without succession of moments. He does not have an eternal past, eternal present, and eternal 
future. Everything is immediately, continually, consciously experienced by God. So we cannot think, when, when I say eternity past in sermons, or you probably say it too, don't think that that means God has a past or God has a future. It's just the best we can do. It's, it's our baby talk to try to understand that Christ existed eternally when we look back. Here's Augustine. Frank, Frank used this many years ago, and I didn't understand it. Then I read the Confessions. I understood it a little bit better, but it's, it's pretty philosophical sounding. By the way, Confessions is great, and then you get to the last three chapters, and he goes into things like time and, and different attributes of God, and it's much more difficult to understand. Before that, it's all about Augustine's testimony, his salvation. He says, what then is time? If no one asks me, I know. If I wish to explain to him who asks, I do not know. Nevertheless, I confidently affirm that I know that if nothing passed away, there would not be past time. And if nothing were coming, there would not be future time. And if nothing were, there would not be present time. So it's just his, Augustine's way of saying, look, time means a succession of moments. And it's even hard for us to understand and explain what time is. But God is, ultimately he goes on in that chapter to say God is not bound by time. All right, let's look real quick at five arguments. The book goes into more explanation. But we're going to look at other attributes here that help us to know God is over time. Transcendent means that he is over it, over it all. That he's, like the graphic Grudem showed, above it all. In the sense, not bound by it. He acts in time, but his nature is not in time. So God is omniscient. That's all knowing. We'll come to that one. How can God know all things if he's bound by time? If he's bound by time, right, he's got to wait for the future to happen before he learns what's going to happen. And the reason these arguments are here in the book and that I'm mentioning them, there are many theologians, some conservative, who say God is within time fully. Once he created, he entered into time, and that's where God is. And these aren't open theists. I mean, I could name a few names, but we won't go into it. We don't have time. Not, not the real solid pastors and theologians we know. They don't believe this, but there are many books out there that appear otherwise sound, and you get to that chapter here on time, and they go off the rails, and especially if they have the name Christian philosopher. Okay, omnipresence. This is God being present everywhere. We'll look at this next time. How can God be everywhere in the universe at all points in time? If he is bound in time, that, that he's, he can't be omnipresent either. Immutability says God doesn't change, but God would change if he was bound in time. That's what time is. It's a, it's a change from one moment to the next to the next. Number four, remember we talked about God's aseity. God cannot be dependent on bound in time and still be independent. That's, that's a contradiction. So if God is bound in time, then he would be dependent on time, but he's not. So obviously this proves that he is transcendent over time. Omnipotence. This is God's all-powerful attribute here. The, the one that says that he, is power, he has power over everything. And if he has power over all events in the timeline then he must be transcendent over it. If he's in time, he could not have power over all things. And I use the word timeline. It's not a timeline to God. He's seeing it all. But as we think of it, it's a timeline. So these are five ways we can maybe talk with somebody who doesn't believe God is transcendent over time. Okay, if you have questions, well, I would say ask Frank, but he's been sick and he's still coughing. So that's, that's kind of the joke. If, if you have questions about the hard stuff, stump the associate pastor. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time here this morning, and I pray that you would help us to know you better. Help us to know you through your word. Let us study it, be good students of it, know it by heart, to hear it, 
and let it challenge us to live a holy life before you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.